Welcome to Mission Driven, a conversation about how startups leverage their social mission as competitive advantage. Mission Driven is hosted by Better Ventures, a seed stage venture fund in Oakland, California, backing entrepreneurs using science and technology to address the world's biggest challenges. You can find us on the web at better.bc and on Twitter at Better Ventures. I'm Rick Moss from Better Ventures, and I'd like to welcome our guest today, Julia Collins. She is a multi-time founder who is founder and CEO currently of Planet Forward, a sustainable food company, which is leveraging the power of regenerative agriculture. She was previously a founder of SoftBank-backed Zoom Pizza. But I thought, gosh, I just can't do it the same way that I've done it in the past. I really need to think about raising capital in a way that's more aligned with who I am and the kind of world that I want to live in. And that's why I decided to intentionally raise a round where the majority of my investors are women, non-binary people, or people who identify as people of color. And I wasn't even sure that it was possible, but I decided to try and... She's held senior leadership roles in food throughout her career, and she holds an MBA from Stanford and an undergraduate degree from Harvard. Welcome, Julia. Hi, Rick. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. Great to have you. You know, before we start, I've been a lifelong jazz fan, and I noticed that you were a VP of uh, Harlem Jazz Enterprises. Tell us about that. Do you have any sort of famous performers or favorite types of music? Oh my goodness. So at Harlem Jazz Enterprises, I helped to reopen this iconic jazz supper club called Minton's. Dick Parsons was the genius behind reopening this place that was the birthplace of bebop. And let me tell you, Rick, that everyone played at Minton's back in the day. I mean, Monk, Gillespie, Parker, everyone was there. And, and many people believe that Minton's is still actually haunted with the ghosts of these iconic jazz artists that played there. So it was really quite an incredible experience to bring that spirit back to this wonderful neighborhood in Harlem during my time there. That's a great story. And any particular artists you're a fan of? Oh gosh, one of my favorite nights at Minton's was when Hugh Masakela came and played. He happened to be in town playing a show at another club and we got lucky and he came and did a couple of sets and it was just absolutely wonderful. That's awesome. I had a similar experience at the Village Vanguard where I saw Branford Marcellus and at the last set, this kind of uh, shorter trumpet player started, just got up on stage and started playing and it was you know, a couple of minutes before I realized that that was his brother, Winton, and how special that was because they really weren't performing together. So I know the sense, have a sense of that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you never forget those moments. I know, I know. And, it, and sometimes you think only in New York, right? <laughs> That's right. So let's start in with Zoom. That sounds like a, a wild ride. Can you just say a bit about that? You know, what is it and uh, what made it special? Oh, yeah. So um, in 2015, after you know 14 years of living in New York City and many of those years working in the brick and mortar restaurant space, I moved back to the Bay Area, my hometown of San Francisco, to co-found a company called Zoom Pizza. And our mission was really just to use the power of technology to fix all of the things that we saw as being a little bit broken in the world of food, you know, working conditions that weren't really good for the human body. And the way that we solved that was to look at automation in the kitchen and using robots in places where humans shouldn't be, like in front of a 800-degree pizza oven, for example. <laughs> we looked at packaging and the ways that our over-reliance on single-use packaging 
that was made from plastic substrates or even paper substrates was really ravaging our environment. So we designed a way to make pizza packages from sugarcane fiber and make them totally compostable. So looking at molded fiber as a technology to replace some of the prior ways that people were thinking about packaging in the food space. We looked at inventory optimization and logistics and third-party delivery, really just a hugely ambitious project. And it was really my first foray into working directly at the intersection of food and technology. My prior career had really been mostly about how to make restaurants better. But the technology piece was the big lever in this case. Got it. So that was your your first startup then? Um, It wasn't my first startup. It was my first food tech startup. My first startup was actually Mexico. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Brick and mortar, fast, casual business that started as a food truck Uh that a couple of buddies had sort of cobbled some money together to buy. And we turned it into a multi-unit fast, casual enterprise selling probably the most delicious Mexican barbecue food you could ever taste. And it's a decade old and being run by my dear friend, um, Thomas Kelly. Wow. That's cool. And on, in terms of like Zoom funds raised and valuation, you raised quite a bit of money and got to like a, a unicorn valuation. Can you just say a bit about that? Yeah, I think the capital strategy that we took at Zoom Pizza really matched the ambition of the company in this audacious goal that we could completely rethink the way that food was grown, manufactured, delivered to customers, packaged. And so it made sense that we had a capital strategy that was in line with the mission and the um, vision of the company. Got it. So in other words, making robots isn't necessarily cheap. (laughs) Reimagining the whole food system certainly isn't. Right. Got it. That's perhaps a good segue to Planet Forward. Let's dive into that a little bit. Can you say a bit about what it is and what makes it special? Yeah. So Planet Forward is on a mission to help tackle climate change by making it easier to bring climate-friendly food products to market. What's really unique about Planet Forward is that we do that in two ways. We make snacks and we make software. (laughs) On the snack side of the business, we just launched a brand called Moonshot, which is um, the US market's first explicitly climate-friendly snack brand. And on the software side of the business, we're building a tool that makes it easy for food brands to improve the overall sustainability of their products by connecting them to really high quality information and giving them a clear picture on their carbon footprint at the product level. Hmm, That's interesting. Can you say more about that? Because we're obviously tech investors. Is that a database? What is that? Yeah, it's a combination of a database and also a carbon assessment tool. So when we talk to brand owners, Rick, we often hear that they want to know how to best improve the sustainability of their products. But the place where they struggle is they don't have the internal capacity to manage all of the complexity that's involved in having total transparency into their ingredients and all of the elements of the supply chain, including you know, their supplier information and their sort of all of the information across the supply chain. So what we do at Planet Forward is we pre-screen ingredients, we pre-screen materials like packaging, we pre-screen suppliers according to our very rigorous sustainability metrics. And then we surface that brand, we put that information in a brand's hands so that they can make decisions like what packaging to use or which almonds to buy or what percentage of honey to use in a recipe to optimize for sustainability. It's just so taxing and time-consuming as a brand, even a pretty large brand, to have all of that capability internally 
But at Planet Forward, we're obsessed with it. So our core mission is really to make that information readily available for brands so that they can make the right moves to improve their impact. Got it. And do you sell it or license it or do you make it available free? How does that work? It's a software as a service model where brands pay a subscription to have unlimited use of the tool. The other cool thing that we're able to do for brands is to give them a really clear picture of their carbon impact at the product level. It would look to the brand like a nutritional facts panel for carbon and carbon equivalents. So you know your total carbon impact, where it's coming from. We can even show you what components of your supply chain are the most carbon intensive. Is it the growing? Is it the distribution? And then we can give you a simulation for how to improve your carbon impact by taking some really easy steps. And those are usually shortening supply chains, changing suppliers, or in some cases, changing ingredients. Oh, I'm in. And I (laughs) I hope you can put that stuff on the label in the future. (laughs) It would be great to pick up a a box of something and see its carbon footprint by ingredient or or by, by the supply chain. Yeah, in some cases, brands will want to use the information to make consumer-facing claims. In other cases, they may use it to make a badge. And in other cases, they actually just want to know how they stand currently so that they can make improvements over time. Like for benchmarking. Exactly. And does this information doesn't exist? So you, you kind of needed it to launch your moonshot? Well, here's the thing. The original vision for, for Planet Forward was I just wanted to make a climate-friendly snack brand for my son. I was at home with this little baby, super obsessed with using my you know, life and my work to take action on climate change. And I remember looking at my pantry one day and thinking, gosh, all of these things in my pantry are part of the problem and not part of the solution. So I sort of naively went off to try to build my own climate-friendly snack brand, and it was impossible. And it wasn't hard just because making a tasty snack is hard, branding is hard. Of course, those things are hard, but they're solvable. It was challenging because I thought in my naivete, I thought that there must be some multi-attribute database that could tell me where ingredients came from, how they were grown, and the outcomes of those practices. Only there wasn't. And so I started to build one just for my own snack brand. And of course, realized a few months after that, if I was really working backwards from climate impact, the better thing to do was not just to build a database for my own brand, but to build it in a way that made it accessible for all brands. Yep, got it. It sounds like something that's that's really needed and could make a big difference. Can you talk a bit about regenerative agriculture? It's a hot topic. I think it's probably part of this uh, information, software as a service or data as a service you just mentioned. What is it, you know, for those who are less familiar with it, what's so special about regenerative agriculture? Yeah, I'll tell you what's so special about regenerative agriculture and why people get so excited about it from the perspective of climate action. So regenerative agriculture is an approach to farming that aims to restore the health of soil that's been degraded because of conventional methods of farming. So it is very much the case, particularly in the United States, that because of some technological innovations and chemistry, namely the Haber-Bosch process, that the way that we tried to improve our crop yields and actually ensure that we had enough food for a growing planet back in the 1940s to 1970s, we call this the Green Revolution. The way that we approached that challenge was mostly through creating all of these nitrogen-based fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, The problem is that all of the over-dependence and overuse of those nitrogen-based inputs 
have really ravaged our soil. To put a really fine point on it, there are many places in our country where we have less than 60 years of farmable topsoil at current depletion rates. Meaning if we keep doing the same thing that we're doing, we will literally not be able to farm our own soil. So the regenerative approach reduces our dependence on these nitrogen-based inputs and instead uses a collection of practices to help improve the health of the soil. And these practices are very simple. They're things like cover cropping, so keeping the ground covered. Things like reducing the amount of tillage, not ripping up the soil with so much heavy passes with heavy equipment. Improving biodiversity so honeybees can return and birds. It's a practice-based narrative that also has these important outcomes like capturing carbon in the soil, like improving nutrient density so our food is actually more nutrient dense, and like improving water infiltration so that our farms don't wash away in the face of heavy storm systems, which as you know, are one of the resulting events because of climate change. Got it. And how about carbon? I think I read somewhere that it can be an enormous carbon sink somehow. Yes. And I think there's, um, you know, frankly, a variety of viewpoints on how much we can claim uh, around soil carbon sequestration. There's, you know, a camp that firmly believes that the wide scale adoption of regenerative agriculture will help us to sequester, you know, maybe even a teraton of carbon from the atmosphere. And then there's the camp that has more modest expectations. And the range, um, I think, reflects um, how new this conversation is. I have every confidence that over time, the scientific community will align around a viewpoint that's a little bit more solid. But what we do know is that regenerative agriculture helps to restore the natural carbon cycle by helping to bury carbon in the soil and in the above ground biomass. And healthy soil is also carbon rich soil. So apart from just the carbon sequestration, that happens with regenerative agriculture, there are a whole host of other ecosystem benefits that are also a lot more climate friendly. Okay, great. Talk about uh, funds raised and investors you're working with. Can you say a bit about that? I can. And you know something, when I first thought about creating Planet Forward, I, you know, I had just been on a wild ride of raising quite a bit of capital for my prior startup. And I thought I would just self-fund the company. <laughs> I thought I would self-fund this climate-friendly snack brand. And that was that was my decision. I think I was a little bit exhausted, frankly, by traditional venture capital. But when I realized that I was building software, I knew that I had to raise in order to be able to execute a go-to-market strategy in the time that we need to really take action on climate change. But I thought, gosh, I just can't do it the same way that I've done it in the past. I really need to think about raising capital in a way that's more aligned with who I am and the kind of world that I want to live in. And that's why I decided to intentionally raise a round where the majority of my investors are women, non-binary people, or people who identify as people of color. And I wasn't even sure that it was possible, but I decided to try anyway. And it worked? It did. <laughs> it did. It worked really well. And I'll tell you that now that I'm, you know, now that I have a board and now that I'm sort of in this dynamic with having a board of directors as a founder, I really find that having a much more diverse cap table gives me more of a sense of safety. And because I feel that safety, I'm much more vulnerable and open with my board. And because I'm more vulnerable and open, they're actually in a position to really help me. And that I think will make all of the difference in terms of my ability to leverage the power of my investors to really build an iconic company. 
Yeah, that's so. Th- this is a perfect segue to our next topic, which is sort of the main topic of this whole show: impact and mission as competitive advantage. So let's follow that thread. Um, I was reading. You've got Cowboy, you've got Precursor, Capor. You know, a handful of really good and known for being mission-driven backers. And um, curious, you know, maybe talk more about how is a group like that, you know, a benefit to you. And how do you think that will come out in terms of being, let's say, a competitive advantage over somebody who's not funded that way? You know, I think there are the tactical implications of working with investors who are, are mission-driven, and then there are the more philosophical implications. So on a tactical level, because I work with investors who are very focused on things like climate impact, things like justice and equity, anti-racism, supporting female founders, you know, capital as a force for good. These are people who have actually done the work and have the data and have the tools and the tactics to support founders who also want to work at that level of mission and impact. Meaning that they have the frameworks, they have the research, they have you know actionable advice for how to make mission and impact part of your core DNA. And so that's incredibly helpful to me. On the philosophical side, as I kind of alluded to earlier, I just feel so much more seen and so much more safe and so much more supported by investors who are saying, my reason for being on the planet is to make this a better planet. My method is that I'm a venture capitalist. I put capital to work against scalable solutions that will create returns. But I do so with this lens. And I think that kind of alignment just makes it easier for me to really open up to my investors. So as someone who's been in a lot of board meetings and presented to board meetings myself, you know, I recognize that there are sometimes situations where the founders come in and they're thinking to themselves, okay, how do we get through this <laughs> and get out of the room with as few problems as possible? And then there are other people who think, you know, these are my advisors and I'm coming, it's almost like spa day. I'm coming to uh, you know, get some help mm-hmm. on the things I really need. And there are people who understand me and are supporting me. I guess maybe that latter is less common, <laughs> but uh, can you relate to that? And would you, how would you describe this? Oh, I really relate to that. I think, you know, the the prior orientation that I had was that I had to always be in this place of proving. Mm-hmm. It's like the pitching never stopped. Right. <laughs> you know, right. you're pitching while you're fundraising, and then after the close, you're still pitching. And I sort of spent, I think, I sort of squandered the most fruitful part of my relationship with investors being stuck in a dynamic of proving. Right. And the dynamic that I have now, the orientation that I have now, is that I'm in a place of being seen and supported so that we can all collectively achieve our mission. And I really, truly see every single investor in Planet Forward as an extension of my core team. Mm. They have different places where they can you know, exert tactical influence, but every single investor is here to achieve our common mission of tackling climate change. And you talked earlier about being more vulnerable with this board or you know, feeling free to be more vulnerable. Can you think of an example of something you would sort of admit maybe in a board meeting or that otherwise you might have been spinning with your prior investors? Oh gosh, I'll tell you something that just came up when we launched Moonshot Snack. So I am a recovering perfectionist and I have the added, <laughs> well I have the added um, burden of sometimes putting extra large t-shirts on extra small problems. Uh-huh. Um, but I know this about myself. And so I try to surround myself with people who can hold me accountable. But we had a little flaw with Moonshot 
on the ceiling of some of our interior bags in the box. We have a bag in a box format for our crackers. For some very small number of boxes, there was a little break in the seal. By the way, this is absolutely not a food safety issue. Crackers are made from inert ingredients. We have, you know, sell by dates to get to get around all of this and to make sure that our product is always safe and compliant. But nonetheless, I was sort of beginning to catastrophize the sealing issue. And I enacted a plan for messaging it to my investors and messaging it to consumers. And the plan was an extra large size plan Mm -hmm. when what I needed was an appropriately sized plan. Mm -hmm. And so because I felt such trust with my investors, particularly the two lead investors who I reached out to, I was able to text them in real time and say, do you have 15 minutes to talk me through this? Here's Mm -hmm. the approach that I'm planning on taking. And they were very able quickly to say, Julia, this is the thing that you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) This is the perfectionist you as opposed to the strong operator you. And so let's help you reframe. But I think if I didn't have that level of trust, A, I wouldn't have reached out. And two, I would have spent more time spinning my wheels around the solution when there was actually a clear solution ready in here. Got it. And so bottom line, will that turn into kind of outperformance for you and how? Yes. I mean, it's. can you imagine how powerful a startup is if they actually leverage the collective power of all of those amazing people that are mm-hmm. part of their investor universe? I mean, you named Kapoor and Mavron and Cowboy and Emerson and Precursor and Leo and January and FSM. I mean, and the list goes on. Mm-hmm. If I'm actually able to fully leverage the power of all of those investors, how much more powerful will I be as a company? And then as a founder, you know, how much just more well <laughs> and mm-hmm. sane and happy will I be as an individual? You know, one of my newest investors, Jason, from my climate journey, MCJ Collective, I probably talk to him six or seven times a week on some format or another. Yep. And it brings me so much joy to really feel that I have a thought partner. So I think the company will be more successful and I will just be happier as a founder because of these relationships that I'm able to build with mission-aligned, impact-aligned investors. That's great. Okay. Preaching to the choir. Um, so <laughs> let's talk about brand. You know, you talk about an explicitly climate-friendly snack brand. And it struck me that some of the most you know, sustainable and or mission-driven brands out there often go to great lengths to hide that or even or, or sort of don't lead with it. You know, I think Tesla doesn't market itself as a low carbon car first. I mean, of course that comes out, but they're they 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 market performance, right? And and there are there are others. There's Beyond Meat and Possible and Patagonia and others. How did you decide to do this so explicitly? And are there pros and cons of that? Yes. I mean you know, when we think about the snack category and what's really in the consideration set of a customer who's buying snacks, I wish it was the case that they were already thinking about climate impact. Unfortunately, it isn't. <laughs> so for us, the product experience, the experience of being a Moonshot customer needs to deliver on what's in the consideration set of our customers. It needs to taste good, it needs to be healthy, and it needs to be convenient. So we certainly met those considerations. But what we feel at Planet Forward is that those are really table stakes. Mm-hmm. That being explicitly climate friendly is a differentiated positioning that actually helps us to stand out. And what we're noticing with our initial customers is that the branding, the bright colors, the sort of whimsical characters on package are driving trial. 
but the flavor and the impact story is what's driving frequency. And say more about that. So you've been able to discern that the the impact story is driving frequency? How so? Yes. And mostly from the verbatims that we get in customer feedback. So one of the most common things that we'll hear is like, oh my gosh, these crackers are so darn tasty. And it makes me feel good that they're better for the planet. Uh Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, these crackers are so darn tasty. Yeah. And it makes me feel good that we're supporting farmers. And I sent a pack to my mom because I know she cares about farmers. Or I sent Mm -hmm. a pack to my sister because I know she cares a lot about the planet. So what we think is happening is that we're taking consumers on, on along a little bit of a journey where we start by... It's sort of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We're starting by making sure that their core needs are met. And once we climb up that hierarchy of needs, we kind of earn permission to be able to talk to them more explicitly about climate change. I right. don't know that there's another product on shelf right now that has the words climate change on the package. Mm-hmm. So that was a bit of a risk. Huh. Point yeah. It seems to be working. Yeah, and are there other are there drawbacks to it that have you know cropped up that you might not have anticipated? Well, it's one that we anticipated, but we decided to do it anyway. Which is that the words "climate change" can be polarizing for many communities. Mm-hmm. So when we look at our messaging hierarchy, you know, Moonshot is the top name, and then climate friendly is the next layer of positioning, and then climate change is under that. Climate friendly seems to be a phrase that creates a lot of alignment. But the climate change is a place where some people have a little bit more trouble. Got it. So if you were giving advice to an entrepreneur who's looking at either a CPG company or any, any sort of brand, really a mission-driven company with a brand, what would your advice be with regard to kind of leading with your mission versus leading with some other attribute? I'd say don't underestimate consumers. You know, and we often look at lagging indicators of consumer willingness to pay premiums for sustainability. Mm-hmm. But I think there are also a lot of leading indicators that help us understand that consumers are moving in this direction. 50% of the growth in food CPG from 2013 to 2018 was related to sustainably marketed brands. Mm-hmm. And so we know that this is a growing category. So don't underestimate your consumer. She's probably ready to hear more about your impact than your competitors in the space are currently telling her. And by you being the person that has that conversation with her, you're building a unique and special relationship that opens the door to have more frequency with her. So just like having a mission-driven and largely email and or BIPOC board is an advantage, you're saying here that this uh, sort of climate-friendly brand that's leading with it is, is also a significant advantage. I absolutely believe so. And climate friendly is the positioning that is absolutely authentic to Moonshot. But for mm-hmm. another brand, it might be something else. I would just say that the next wave of you know talking to consumers is here. And there's a much higher appetite for brands to talk about really important issues mm-hmm. like racial justice or yep. climate justice, maybe than there even was you know five years ago. Mm-hmm. Good. Well, so let's cover one more area of mission here before we move on. Culture and team. You want to say a bit about it? It sounds like you started working on your mission-driven culture kind of earlier than other other startups. And talk about that a bit. Yeah. Well, you know, I in building Planet Forward, I really did believe that I'd have an unfair advantage in being able to like attract and retain the best people in the world because of our focus on climate change. Mm-hmm. I really had a hunch that that was true, but I also care deeply about things like anti-racism or equity 
Mm-hmm. And we were born, Planet Forward was born during a really unique time. I mean, we came to be truly in 2020, mm-hmm. which is a time when we were having, you know, a global pandemic, a racial reckoning and awakening, you know, increasing evidence of the, you know, fact that climate change is happening faster and more broadly than we ever feared it would. And so there was a huge opportunity to really lean into that. Mm-hmm. Not just my customers, but my employees were really hungry to work for a company that was very clear about our reason for being. And so I decided not to wait to articulate our values until we were sort of like at that high growth stage. But even as a very early stage company, to spend some time, dedicate time and resources to very clearly articulating our mission, our vision, our mission, and our culture. And that's something that we did really at the five or six month mark as a company. So would you recommend doing it that early for everybody? I can't imagine why you wouldn't. If you're right. if you're really a mission-driven company, of course, there's always the question of like sequencing and prioritization. But uh-huh. I think there's a, a, a huge advantage to being able to articulate it early on so yeah. that actually it can become part of your core DNA and surface itself in all of the many ways that you interact with each other at the company. And of course, this is closely related to hiring. So imagine when you're hiring, you're thinking about this, talking about and selecting people who are going to fit with this and desire this this culture, right? Or say a bit about that. I mean, you know, I think, so we make snacks and software at Planet Forward. That is not easy. Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> it is not easy a to Venn be a diagram snack. of people who can do both of those. Yeah. Right. And the only reason why this strategy will work for our company is because we're able to attract some of the very most talented people in the world. But being very buttoned up about culture and being able to say to somebody in an early conversation, I know we're only six months old and I know we've raised maybe one-tenth of the amount of capital versus this other company who's given you an offer of a salary that might be double what I'm able to offer you. But I'm really clear about what we're building here and I can show it to you. This is what everyone at the company has agreed to. This is what our investors have agreed to. That's a really powerful lever even in something like a negotiation with an employee who has multiple offers right. on the table. Yeah. Right. And did you see it actually tangibly um, working in terms of attracting someone maybe at the same pay level or a lower pay level or where they might have had some juicy package dangled somewhere else? Yes. I'd say this has been the case with three of the five hires that I made in the back half of 2020 who told me explicitly that it was our clear articulation of our mission, vision, and values that was the, the, the real thing that got them over the line to come and work at Planet Forward. Okay. Well, th- this is all really, really good. We've covered, kind of covered the waterfront on impact. Let's just turn a bit to race and gender. As you mentioned, it's a very timely topic here at the beginning of 2021. I think we just feel like we went through the ringer in 2020, and I'm afraid it's not over. But you know, in the technology world in particular, in our uh, one of our recent episodes with Heidi Patel from Rethink Impact, which is focused on uh, female founders, we outlined some of the things around startups founded by women and founders of color attract kind of a tragically small fraction of venture money. And in fact, if you're a black woman, uh, according to Allray's, they garner about 0.0006% of VC funding. So, like, this is a, it's a big issue for all of us. And I think you said once in a magazine interview, if, uh, I got a quote here. If you're a founder, you're a fighter and you're uniquely positioned to take on the challenge. I'd rather focus on paving the way for other women, limiting my choices to appease the heteronormative patriarchy. First of all, excellent use of SAT words. And second of all, (laughs) uh, can you say more about 
<laughs> what you mean? What you mean by all that? Um, no, yeah. I mean this is a very serious topic. So I mean, when you hear point zero 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 six, you know, percent of you know venture dollars are related to black founders, black female founders, black women. When yeah. You're a, when you're, yeah, when you're a black woman and you hear that, it can be paralyzing. Yeah. Like we we need to share these statistics because people need to understand the magnitude of the problem or maybe the magnitude of the impact that they can have if they really get to work. But when you're on the receiving end of a statistic like that, it can actually just make you want to stop before you've even started. Mm-hmm. So what I was trying to say there and what I really say to like my fellow Black female founders and, and just really any founder who is underrepresented or underestimated, as Arlen Hamilton says, is like, yes, that is very much the case. But if you've chosen to, to make your life's mission building companies, that's also a really hard thing. That's mm-hmm. also something that feels daunting and insurmountable. So if you've got it in you to be a founder, you've also got it in you to beat the odds. And so when I'm, when I'm saying that, I'm really speaking to that audience. But then there's another audience. There's the audience of people who are actually in control of deploying these dollars mm-hmm. and who in their you know, stewardship of capital have not done a good job of making sure that they're good stewards of capital from the standpoint of justice and equity. Mm-hmm. And to those people, I say, like the work is only just now beginning. And if you shy away from thinking about you know, just your duty, if that feels like something that's just too far far-fetched, then maybe just think about the underlooked opportunities available in this market. Mm-hmm. Like if you believe that human capital is, you know, or talent, if you truly believe that all people are created equal and you see a category of people that have received 0.00006% of all venture mm-hmm. dollars, then can't you just see that as a blue ocean opportunity? Yes. And I think that's the mindset shift that I hope that I hope will happen and that I hope is continuing to happen and that I do, I do frankly see happening. So in other words, it's the right thing to do from a social and racial justice stand and gender justice standpoint. But even if you're challenged getting on board with that, it's straight up a uh, commercial opportunity. So either way, get on board. Exactly. Well said. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So let's see, we're nearing the end of our time here. Uh, anything else to say about race and gender before we wrap up? I think you know a lot of times we talk about the need to invest in you know underrepresented founders at the company level, and that's important. But I really am inspired by this movement to investing in more underrepresented GPs. I mm-hmm. think diverse fund managers outperform other fund managers. And I, I really want to make sure that folks are not just thinking about the company level, but also thinking about creating more diversity and justice and equity at the fund level. Yep, for sure. And even the, the the level in the ladder above them, which is the LP food chain and kind of on and on and on. Absolutely. So since we're near the end of our time here, we'd love to hear what your personal mission is. If I were to say Julia Collins is on a mission to what? Julia Collins is on a mission to make this the decade of climate impact. That's a great one. I love it. So there you have it, Julia Collins, CEO and founder of Planet Forward uh, on a mission to make this the decade of climate impact. Thanks, Julia. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Mission Driven. To find out more about Better Ventures, visit us at better.bc or on Twitter at Better Ventures.